Holy Spirit, we are absolutely dependent upon you to take the Word of God and make it clear and plain in our hearts. You've told us in your Word that a person who doesn't have the Spirit of Jesus Christ can't understand the things of God. But when your Spirit is present, you give us enlightenment. You give us uh, understanding. And so I ask that you would do that right now that you would help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what it is that you have for us from your word today, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as Pastor John mentioned, we're starting uh, our summer series, and you know that one of the things that I often do is that I use the summertime for us to do a book study or a study on several different books in the Bible. And so this summer, we're going to be studying through the Minor Prophets. And uh, maybe you ask the question, well, why in the world would you want to study the minor prophets? Aren't they just dull and boring? And, and what's, what's with that? Well, so why study them? Look with me in your notes there on screen uh, as well. Uh, uh, those of you who are online, uh, look at the, the passage that's listed there. I want to look at 2 Timothy 2.15. Very familiar passage of Scripture, but it really gives to us the reason why we need to study the minor prophets. And it says this, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So in other words, Paul is saying to Timothy here, and he's saying to us, we're to do our best. That is, the word means to be diligent. We're, we're to study, we're to endeavor to accurately handle God's Word and to be a student of the Word of God. And so there's a first reason why we ought to study the Minor Prophets, is that Scripture says we need to be diligent to get into God's Word and study God's Word. But beyond that, look at Joshua 1.8. God is speaking to Joshua and He says, Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then <clears throat> will you prosper and succeed in all you do. In other words, we're urged to get into this book, to stay in this book, to study this book. And might I add, we need to be in all of this book. Look at it again in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 and following. Paul's writing again to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have, have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. So in that verse of Scripture, Paul tells us that God's Word, uh, there's two things about God's Word that he says in here. First of all, he says it is inspired. And second, he says it is, equips us and it, it changes us. It changes our lives. <clears throat> you know, the word Scripture comes from the Latin word that simply means writings. 
And yet over time, the word scripture has come to mean writings that are identified as being authoritative and inspired in in some way. So basically what we're talking about is inspired writings when we talk about scripture. In fact, he says it is inspired. And that word inspire means God breathed. It's God breathed. If you think about it, scripture is from the mouth and the nostrils of God. This is God's breath to us. This is God's word to us. And so scripture uh, does wonderful things in our life. In fact, uh, Paul claimed four unique truths about the Bible in this verse. First of all, he says scripture gives us wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is how we know what God did for us in Jesus Christ. But secondly, he says, Scripture is all from God. And again, it's God-breathed. Another thing that he says, it's extremely useful to teach us how to live. And then he says, Scripture prepares and equips us for all the things that God wants us to do in our life. Now, look at verse 16 again there. Paul tells us that the Bible is useful. Other translations say the Bible is profitable. And, and he mentions there are four things that Scripture is useful for, four things that make it profitable in our lives. He, he talks about uh, four things that God's Word does in our life. And from the King James Version, it says that, that he, uh, it's for useful for teaching, for Uh, reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that is it teaches us what we need to know it corrects us when we're going wrong it reproves us and shows us how we're off track and then it trains us in how we ought to live the way in which we ought to live Um, and notice also in verse 16 it says all scripture not just here there a little bit here a little bit there all scripture. In other words, every verse in this Bible does one of those four things in our life. Every single verse has implanted in it at least one of these four ingredients to empower us to be like Jesus Christ. Folks, even the minor prophets, okay? They're part of all Scripture. And so we're to study the Bible because it is extremely useful. It's extremely profitable in our lives to do these four things. Teaching. In other words, what is it I need to know? This is where I learn doctrine. This is where I learn, you know, the the true and balanced view of life. You're not going to find a true view of life anywhere else but in the Word of God. But also it's useful for reproof. It teaches me what I need to stop doing in my life. And, and so in the, in the Word of God, there are warnings, there are commands, there are the tragic examples of people who disobeyed God and the results in their life. And so I follow those things and I learn what it is I need to stop doing in my life. And then it's useful for correction. It corrects me. It tells me, here's what you need to do to change. You know, the Bible grabs our attention. We're going in the wrong direction and the Bible taps us on the shoulder and says, uh-uh. This is the wrong way to go. And then the last thing, it trains us. It teaches us what we should be doing. It turns us around and says, no, this is the way in which you ought to go. And so the Bible grabs our attention and it shows us where we're off track and puts us on the right path. This is why we should study all of the Word of God. 
And so as you and I spend time in God's word, God is going to gently direct us and, and open our lives up so that we'll know, you know, what we need to stop, what we need to start, what we need to do, what we need to correct, how we need to live out our lives. Unfortunately, most of us, when we finally get into God's word, you know where we land up? We land up in the New Testament, don't we? We're in there, we're looking at the gospel stories of Jesus Christ. Maybe we've got a little bit of, of the Apostle Paul. We read some of his writings, maybe some of the other apostles in the New Testament. And if we ever get to the Old Testament, what do we do? We go to the book of Psalms, sure. And I hope after the last few months, as we've looked in Proverbs, I've kind of whetted your appetite, and you're looking in Proverbs, and you're kind of beginning to see those kinds of things. But the tragedy is that maybe the most neglected part of Scripture is the minor prophets. I call them the, the forgotten 12 because there are 12 of them. Uh, we just don't spend much time in, in, in this part of the Bible hardly at all. <laughs> it's interesting that Paul, when he was addressing the elders at Ephesus, uh, as he was kind of giving them his farewell speech in, X, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, he said to them, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I want us as a church to study the whole counsel of God. I think we need to know all of Scripture. And so therefore, we're going to spend the next 12 weeks looking at the 12 minor prophets. And it as we get to the end this morning, I'll give you some more reasons why we need to look at the, the, uh, these 12 prophets. But maybe to help us, and, and one of the things I want you to understand is that probably this summer is kind of going to be like going to Bible college, okay? You might want to take notes. Maybe you want to get a notebook going or whatever, because I'm going to give you lots of stuff. We're going to dig deep into God's Word. And so what I want to do is I want you to, first of all, let's kind of try to get an understanding of the structure of the Old Testament. We don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, and maybe we don't know a whole lot about it. Our Old Testament is a collection of 39 different books or writings that the Christian church has recognized as the inspired Word of God. Uh, these 39 books were written over a period of about 1,600 years by approximately 31 different authors. And, but there is a unifying theme in all of this book, and that is the story of God's covenant relationship with His chosen people, the, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. <clears throat> now, when you and I come to the Old Testament, maybe one of the things that confuses us is there doesn't seem to be a, a, a real order in which these books are put together. They, they kind of seem to have been put in here randomly. I mean, for, for one thing, you've got the repetition of history. You've got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then you get to First and Second Chronicles, and it repeats everything you just read. And, and you think, why is that so? And then uh, why are the, the, the prophets who live during those eras of first and second Samuel, first and king, why are they all at the end of the book? Why do you put all their writings at the end? And then you got sandwiched in the middle those books of poetry that, that we talk about, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth. It, it just seems like there's no pattern to the way in which our, our, our Old Testament is, is put together. 
let me help us to understand a little bit about the Old Testament. Our Old Testament, the order of our Old Testament is really based on three divisions that come out of the Hebrew Bible. And I'm talking about the Bible as it was originally, originally written in the Hebrew. We need to remember that the Old Testament was the scriptures to the Jewish people long before the Christian era even began. Long before the Christian church decided that the Old Testament was scripture to them as well. And so the Hebrew Bible will have all the writings that our Bible has. Our Old Testament has. All those chapters and verses are all in the Hebrew Bible. But it will only have them in 24 books. we got 39 books. They only have 24 books, but it covers the whole gamut of it. And it's divided into three divisions. The first division of the Hebrew Bible is called the Torah. It's a Hebrew word that means law. And uh, that section contains those five books that uh, we traditionally say that these are, were written by Moses and it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the first section in the Hebrew Bible. The, the second division is called the Nibaim, or the word prophets. Now, not prophets in the sense that we're going to talk about the minor prophets, okay? Their, their idea of prophets is different in this. And the, the prophets, that second division in the Hebrew Bible, is really divided into um, what's called the former prophets and the latter prophets. So former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets contain the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and Kings. Now, our Bible divides Samuel into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings into 1 Kings, 2 Kings. The Hebrew Bible just has one book called Samuel, has another book called Kings, okay? So those are the, what are called the former prophets. Then they have the latter prophets, which would include what we call the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Okay, and then they would have a division called the minor prophets, which would have been the 12 minor prophets that we're going to be looking at. Then you have a third division in the Hebrew Bible, and it's called the Ketabim or the writings. And this division contains, first of all, the poetry, you know, Psalms, Proverbs and Job. And then it has another section called the scrolls, which... Um, would have Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And then in addition, there would be another uh, section called the histories. And that would be Daniel and Ezra, Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible. That's just one book together. And then First and Second Chronicles, again, one book together. Now, our English Bible is different from the organization of the Hebrew Bible. Our English Bible is divided by what we would call genre or types of writings. And so you start with the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the first section in our English Bible. And then we have what's called the histories, the histories, which is a kind of the history of the, of the Jewish people. And that would be Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Then the, the, that's the, the, the second section, I guess, that, that what we would have would be the book of history. And then you would have a third section called poetry. And that's Psalms, 
Proverbs, or Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then the fourth division in our English Bible are what are called the prophets. You have the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, Lamentation is not a prophet, okay? Lamentation is a book of laments, and it was written by Jeremiah. So you really only have four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then we have a group called the Minor Prophets, and that's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, okay? How many of you, when you were kids, memorized the books of the Bible? Oh, come on, folks. You need to memorize those things. How are you ever going to find your way around here? Memorize them, okay? Do that, all right? So the Minor Prophets, by the way, doesn't designate them as being some kind of lesser thing, that their role wasn't important, their message isn't very important. The reason they're called minor has to do with the length of the book. You know, modern writers today are length. These are their major works, and they're long books, 300, 400 pages long. And then they might have, here are their minor works. You know, here's a little book that's 50 pages long or a short story or whatever. That's the picture here. The major prophets have lots of chapters. The minor prophets have just a few chapters, one chapter, two chapters, or, or whatever. So that's the difference. It has to do with the length of the writing. Now, <laughs> excuse me, for us to begin to understand the role of, uh, that these 16 prophets, four major and 12 minor prophets, uh, had in the, in the, um, really in the history of Israel, I want to take a really quick overview of the history uh, of the Old Testament, of how God worked through the Old Testament. The Old Testament, of course, begins in Genesis with the creation of man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And I firmly believe that if we're going to understand the Old Testament, we need to start with a very basic question, and that is simply this. Why did God create man and woman? If we come to a grasp with the answer to that question, it's going to make everything else make sense, okay? So why did God create man and woman? He certainly wasn't lonely, okay? To imply that God created mankind because he needed companionship uh, that would indicate in some way that God was incomplete somehow. Um, you know, and that's not an accurate thought about God because God is perfect. He's totally completed himself. And also think about this. God has always existed from eternity as a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they had perfect fellowship one with another from all of eternity. So there was no need for anything else. So again, why then did God create humanity? I think the answer to that is, is twofold. First, God desired to express his nature of love to an object of love. And so God created humanity so that he could love them. But a second and maybe even a more fundamental idea is that God created mankind uh, and, and for that matter, the world in which mankind lives, so that they could give him glory, so that God could receive glory. Look at Isaiah 43 and verse 7. He says, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them, catch this, I have made them for my glory. 
It was I who created them. You notice those words? Made them and created them. See, mankind was created to show forth the glory of God. Now, recognize that, that Isaiah here is speaking to the children, of, uh, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel specifically. However, the revealing of the glory of God applies to all of God's creation. Uh, Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. So God's design for this world is for His glory to be seen in everything that abounds, everything that's created. Uh, Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For everything comes from Him and exists by His power and, catch this, is intended for His glory. Everything is intended for His glory. All glory to Him forever and ever. Amen. So as you look at Scripture, we're admonished to, to give God the glory He deserves. That's 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 16. We're to, to ensure that whatever we do, quote, do it all for the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10. So that, and then quoting from 1 Peter uh, 4.11, everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Thus, the Bible is very, very clear that our purpose on this earth, the the reason that we exist is to bring glory to God, to, to lift Him up, to exalt Him, to praise His name, and to give Him glory. So now we ask the question, okay, well, if that's what we're to do, what does it mean to give God glory? Well, as you look at the, at the, the uh, biblical teaching, the word glory, the Hebrew word glory means... Um, it really talks about to give uh, importance or uh, it talks about the weight of importance and really the shining majesty that is a part of God's presence. In other words, the Hebrew word carries the idea of being heavy in weight, that God is heavy. God is weighty. Now, not in poundage. We're not putting him on a scale, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. But we're saying in importance, he is the chief priority of the universe. He is the most important thing in all the universe. He is the, the weightiest thing in all of the universe. And thus for us to give glory to God is to recognize the incredible importance of God and, and the weight that he carries in the universe. To give, God, to give God glory is to recognize the essential nature of God as God. And to give him the ultimate importance over everything else in, in, in all of the universe. To give God glory or to magnify his glory is simply to recognize how immense his glory is. And to give him his rightful place in this universe. In other words, you and I as believers, we're to serve as telescopes so that people can see through us the immensity of God's glory and the weightiness of who God really is. Sadly, <clears throat> from the very beginning of time, mankind has failed to give glory to God. What did, what did Paul write? He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we have failed 
to give God glory, the very thing that we were created for. And so from the start of disobedience in, in the Garden of Eden, the thoughts and intents of the human heart have always been away from God. And, and this wayward drift away from God is repeated in acts of disobedience over and over and over, all the way through the present era. Um, we're constantly demonstrating some kind of an independent spirit, uh, which really is the essence of sin. I mean, we want to be the important one, not God. Uh, we want to be the most important thing. We're, we're, we all possess a very proud and sinful attitude that really does anything but give glory to God. What do we want to do? We want to steal that glory for ourselves, right? And that's the, that's the problem that this world finds itself in. From the very creation of the world till today, we've been robbing that glory from God. But here's a word of hope. <clears throat> God still desires a relationship with proud and, and sinful humanity. Um, and to make that relationship possible, he set in motion a plan from the beginning of time to redeem a fallen humanity back to himself through Jesus Christ. I mean, it began with God covering the guilt and the shame of Adam and Eve with animal skins in the Garden of Eden. It continued in the call to, to Cain to not let sin, the sin of jealousy and the sin of bitterness, entrap him. It is seen in the incredible picture of Enoch, who walked so closely to God that he never tasted death. The pursuing love of God is, is pictured in God's mercy, even in the midst of God's wrath as he delivers Noah and his family from the flood. And uh, the early history of God's pursuit climaxes in the call of Abraham to come out of Ur of the Chaldees so that God could use him to start his chosen people. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and became the grandfather of Jacob and became the great-grandfather of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, and God entered into a personal relationship with them so that they could be his chosen people. Now, the Old Testament is not going to sugarcoat the history of the children of Israel. We're going to see them warts and all, that they really are a wayward, sinful people. It, be, it began with a natural disaster. Drought strikes the land of Canaan, and so they make their way to Egypt where there's plenty, where there's food. And while they're there, they, they suddenly find themselves oppressed by the Egyptian people. They, they're turned into slaves. They're construction slaves working on monuments for the, for the Egyptian Pharaoh. And they cry out to God. And out of that experience, God miraculously delivers them. And no sooner have they been delivered than what do they do? They start complaining toward God. They start ignoring God. They start, uh, they start falling away from, from worshiping God and fall into idolatry. And time and time again during that Exodus event, <clears throat> God sends hardship to draw them back to him. Uh, God speaks words of grief over the waywardness of that nation. And finally, an entire generation dies in the wilderness of the Arabian desert. And then God leads them into the land of promise, the promised land that he gave to Abraham. It's a land described as land flowing with milk and honey. And once they're there, they fall away from God again. 
They begin this pattern of falling into idolatry and disobedience toward God. And you get to the book of Judges, and it's just this cycle that just repeats over and over again of the people falling into idolatry. God sending enemies against them to oppress them. They cry out to God and repent. God brings a deliverer uh, called a judge in the book of Judges, not somebody who sits on a court and pounds on a gavel, but a, a deliverer, somebody who rescues them from their enemies. And as soon as they're rescued, what happens? They fall back into sin and the pattern just goes on and on. But here's the thing. God never gave up on his people during all those years. And, uh, you know, you would think that somehow and in some way they would, would turn to God, but it never happened. It never happened. They always came back to God, and then they always fell away. So after the period of the judges, we entered what's called the period of the United Kingdom, where you had some God-given leaders over the people, Saul, David, and Solomon. And one would have thought that these three guys could lead Israel to remain true to their commitment to God. Well, Saul was a disaster as a leader over the nation of Israel. He began well, but he crashed in his own disobedience toward God. And so God uh, took back the kingdom, rescinded the throne uh, from King Saul, and gave it to a shepherd boy by the name of David. And of all the kings of Israel... David stands head and shoulders above all the other kings in his commitment to follow the Lord God Almighty. Now, David wasn't perfect, and yet he ensured that the nation of Israel remained true in their commitment to God during his, during his reign. Well, Solomon, who was David's son, began with great promise. Yet over time, his singular devotion to God grew lax and grew dim. And through the influence of the many, and I say many, 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 many foreign wives that he married, okay? Many, 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 okay? He fell into idolatry and and really lost his heart for God. As a result of Solomon's ultimate unfaithfulness toward God, God tore away 12 tribes out of that kingdom that he, that he was ruling over. <clears throat> uh, ten of those tribes were given to, his, uh, to one of Solomon's servants, a man by the name of Jeroboam. And he became the king over that offshoot, kind of a civil war, and they pulled away. The other two tribes, Benjamin, which was a small tribe, and then the, the tribe of Judah, were given to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And he ruled over them. And so the, the, the ten tribes became what's called the northern kingdom. And they, took, they adopted the name Israel. And so as you read through these minor prophets, anytime they're talking about Israel, they're talking about the northern ten tribes. Okay? The southern tribes, the southern kingdom was called Judah for the primary tribe that was a part of that group there. And so <clears throat> this divided kingdom began in about 930 B.C. And it went on for about 208 years. And during those 208 years, there were various kings that ruled over all of the, uh, of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. One of the things about all the kings in the northern kingdom, every one of them was wicked. 
There wasn't one of them who sought after God. They all were off into idolatry and disobedience toward God. Just a, a raucous bunch of guys that never, ever acknowledged the true God. The southern kingdom of Judah had a variety of kings. Some of the kings were great godly men. And they were called, they had men after David's heart. They, they followed their, their, you know, their forefather David and were true to God and worshiped in the temple. And then some of those kings were very wicked. And it was said, the text talks of them as being, they followed the ways of Jeroboam, who was that first king of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And so as a result of that, God brought judgment on these nations. Well, it, it's during the, this period of time that God raises up the prophets. Um, these were his messengers. He sent them to the people. They were led by the Holy Spirit. They heard from God. They spoke God's message to the people. And uh, <clears throat> we sometimes think of a prophet as somebody who predicts the future and, you know, he's some kind of a soothsayer and saying this is going to happen and all that. Well, yeah, some of the events, the, the things that the prophet spoke about were things in the future that were to take place. But by and large, the prophets simply were what we would call preachers. They were challenging the people in their disobedience. They, they were challenging their sinfulness and they were calling them back to God return and, and repent and return to God. <clears throat> and part of it was they would predict that if you don't return to God, there's going to be some severe consequences that are going to happen. And sure enough, those predictions of consequences eventually became true. 722 B.C., uh, the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel was invaded by the Assyrian uh, army and uh, they captured the country. They deported all the people and took them away into exile. And they've never been heard from in history again. You've heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel. That was them, and they're gone. No trace of them has ever been found since then. Now, you and I might hope that the southern kingdom of Judah would learn the lesson. We saw our brothers up north, and boy, they blew it. And God just wiped them out from the face of the earth, you know. But unfortunately, that was not the case. The, the southern kingdom, even though they had righteous kings that followed after David in the ways of, of the Lord, oftentimes the people of the country were still living in apostasy and idolatry toward God. And so thus in 80, uh, 587 and 586 B.C., the southern kingdom was invaded by Babylon, the forces of Babylonia that came in and, and uh, carried them away into exile in Babylon. And so what we're going to find is that the books of prophecy in the Old Testament go hand in glove with history of the nation of, of Israel, the northern kingdom and, and, the, and the southern kingdom. You should have received as you came in a, a chart. And if you don't have one, hold your hands up. And, and Steve's over here has got some more. Uh, this will really help you in your study. Uh, for those of you who are online, if you would just go up on the connection card, click on it, and in the comments, just give us your email address. We can send you a PDF of this so that you can study it. But as you look at it, and you want to look at it this way, going from left to right, we start with the United Kingdom, and then comes the Divided Kingdom. The, the kings that are listed on the top 
are the kings of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. The kings that are listed on the very bottom are the kings of the southern kingdom, <clears throat> the, uh, the kingdom of Judah. And you'll see how, you know, the, the divided kingdom went along for a while and then the northern kingdom disappeared. 722, the fall of Samaria. That was the capital city of Israel. And then you see the ex, uh, go, go on the history of, of the southern kingdom. And then finally the exile begins in Babylon. And so there are prophets that prophesied during the exile. There are some prophets that prophesy after the exile in the post-exilic time. And you see on your chart here in the middle are the prophets. And you can see when they, when they ministered, you can see how they related to a variety of kings. Maybe they would be a prophet during three or four different dynasties of the kings. Uh, you see also how some of the prophets overlapped one another. They would be contemporaries with one another. So this will be a useful thing. We're going to plug the minor prophets into the order in which they occur in history, not the order in which they occur in, in the Bible, okay? But where do they fit in in history? So we're going to start next week with Jonah. <clears throat> That'll be the first minor prophet that we're going to look at because that's where he kind of fits in, right at the very beginning. He was one of the, the first of the prophets that, uh, that wrote, uh, that his story was written about. Now, just to mention to you that there are other prophets in Israel who didn't write things, like Elijah. Elisha and some of the others. And you see on that chart there where they kind of fit in. So again, those of you online, just go to the connection card and say, I need the chart. I want the chart. And uh, give us an email address and we'll, we'll give you, send you a PDF file that has this, this chart on it. Um, so let me close out by just simply talking for a moment about what are then are the themes? What's the subjects that we're going to find in these minor prophets. And I think we're going to find that they're going to deal with three major themes in their books. First of all is the problem of sin. Uh, these 12 books are going to point to, here's this covenant relationship that you're supposed to have with the Lord God Almighty, and you have violated it. You're sinful. You're idolatrous. You've, you're, you're treating people ugly and so forth. And so he deals with that problem of sin and unfaithfulness toward God. For instance, Hosea 4.1. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness. There is no kindness. No knowledge of God in your land. And so they were challenging the sins of the people that was an important message as a part of the, of the minor prophets. But in addition, they also challenged the social injustices that were happening in that day and time. I mean, the leaders, the priests, um, uh, the, the people were constantly condemned for the way they treated widows and orphans and uh, the poor and the refugees in the land. For instance, Amos 5 verse 10 how you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So one of the things that we're going to see is they're going to denounce sin in the northern kingdom, some of the prophets are going to denounce sin in the southern kingdom, and they're going to be prophets that are going to denounce the sins of the, of the countries around Judah and Israel as well. Second thing, theme that we, we're going to find in the minor prophets is the fact that punishment was coming. God's not going to let this sin 
go unpunished. <clears throat> and so there's going to be punishment that's going to be pronounced on Judah and on Israel, and for that matter, on the the the, the nations surrounding uh, the you know the Holy Land. Uh, they're going to be uh, denouncing the sins and talking about punishment for Babylon and and punishment for Assyria and so forth. And so there's going to be a section of prophecy that's that's going to uh, really talk about the future consequences of the sins of the people. Now, one thing I want to just point out real quickly, a theme that we're going to run into throughout the minor prophets is a term or a concept called the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Um, we're going to see that phrase. In fact, that's a term that's used by the Old Testament prophets, both major and minor Old Testament prophets, but it's also used by the apostles in the New Testament. They talk about the day of the Lord, and it's used in two different senses. First of all, it, the, they identify the day of the Lord as a climactic event when God intervenes in history and establishes his sovereignty and, and, uh, and you know, eradicates all evil and brings in a kingdom of peace and, and, a, and his universal reign on this earth. But a second way in which that term day of the Lord is used and especially by these Old Testament prophets, is they use it to refer to various incidents where God <clears throat> intrudes in space and time <clears throat> to bring justice through punishing wickedness. Now, what we're going to find for uh, the Israelite people, both those in the north and those in the south, they had a concept of the day of the Lord that they thought it was going to be a great and glorious day, a day of light, a day of victory, a, a, a day of joy. The prophets, time and time again, warned them, you've got it all wrong, folks. It's going to be a day of darkness. It's going to be a day of judgment. It's going to be a day of destruction. Look, for instance, at Amos chapter 5, verse 18. What sorrow awaits you who say, oh, if only the day of the Lord were here. You have no idea what you're wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house, and he's bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of hope or joy, uh, without a ray of, of joy or hope. So prophet after prophet is going to speak of invading armies that are going to come as uh, against the people and exile them. You know, Israel is going to be deported into oblivion, never to be heard again from again. And Judah is going to be deported to Babylon, where they're going to live for seven decades. The third theme that we find in the Minor Prophets is the coming restoration of the nation. You know, a number of the Minor Prophets are going to talk about a day when the um, exile will be over. And the people will return to Jerusalem and, and to Judah, and they will rebuild the city. They'll rebuild the temple. Again, Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. Verse 15. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So not only was there hope of returning, to Jerusalem and Judah. But then there was also the, the fulfillment of prophecy concerning the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. That's where the post-exilic 
minor prophets come in. You know, guys like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Their primary message was one of encouragement, was challenge. Get the job done. Get the wall rebuilt. Get the temple rebuilt. And so they're challenging them to continue rebuilding. So come back. We're going to circle all the way back. Why in the world do we want to spend the summer in the minor prophets? I think there's a number of reasons. I've already mentioned we need to look at the whole counsel of God. We need to know all of what God's Word teaches us. But I think there's two vastly more important reasons than this. Number one reason, folks, what we're going to find is that our nation, United States of America, mirrors Israel. In that day and time, it mirrors it today with the sinfulness, the rejection of God, uh, look at this verse of Amos 3. Isn't this describe us today? My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Is that where we are as a, as a nation? We've forgotten how to do right. This is as fresh and as relevant as today's newspaper. We are going to face judgment as a nation. I just mark my word. I'm not a prophet. I'm just an observer and folks, if, if God doesn't bring punishment on our nation, then he needs to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because they didn't have anything on America. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to get angry. Thank the Lord that he is. But his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. God is patient with our nation. But one day, folks, his patience is going to run out and judgment will come. There's a second reason why I think we need to spend time in the, in the minor prophets. <clears throat> Not only our country, but each one of us as individuals, we spend a great deal of time ignoring God, don't we? Um, Tragically, we're mirroring the culture around us in what we watch, what we listen to, um, what we talk about, the way in which we use our money, the way the things that we're interested in. I mean, too many Christians today are closer to the world than they are to God. And so this study of, of the minor prophets is really going to challenge us to repent of our love for the world and to return to God. Look at Hosea chapter 6. This, is a, this would be a great passage to just mull over and to meditate on because it really talks about where we are as a nation. The prophet says this, Come, let us return to the Lord. Don't we need to do that as a nation? Don't we need to do that as individuals? Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Folks, God has brought some judgment already on our nation. He's torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. You know why he'll heal us? Because we've returned to him. There, there's, there's some you know, correspondence here. We return, he heals, okay? He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. <clears throat> in a short time, he will restore us so we may live in his presence. And then verse 3, man, this is my prayer for me. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for our nation. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. 
<clears throat> he will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. I think one of the problems that we face as believers in America today, not just those of us right here, but people who name the name of Christianity all across our country, is that somehow we have mixed up the idea of coming to church and worshiping with what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Somehow we have this idea that if we can come to church, we can worship, man, that's enough. But look at God's attitude toward that kind of worship, and I would call it shallow worship. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. <clears throat> what can we bring to the Lord? You know, I'm going to put a dollar in the offering plate today. Man, aren't I good, you know. What can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offering should we give Him? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer Him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn child to pay for our sins? All those things were a part of the worship of, of Israel in that day and time. But look what he says in verse 8. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what He requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Folks, following God is not just Sunday morning worship, but it's every moment of every waking hour of our day where we're living for Him and want to reflect Him. Joel said this, The Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Folks, God is not going to be patient with America much longer. <clears throat> Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothes in grief, an outward expression of grieving, but tear your hearts instead. We need to be brokenhearted as a nation, as individuals over the sinfulness in our world. Tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. If we would turn to God, God would turn to us. He's eager to relent. He doesn't want to bring judgment, but He will. And then Zephaniah 2.3. <clears throat> this is a word for all of us. Seek the Lord all who are humble, and, and follow His commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you, protect you from His anger on that day of destruction. This is a, these books are going to be great books for us to look at this summer. If you, don't, if you can't make it on a Sunday, man, be sure and check us out online. Because these, these are, this is today's newspaper that we're going to be looking at. Let's bow for prayer. <clears throat> Father, may we listen with hearts of faith to what you have to say to us through your word. This is your guidebook for us. This is what we live on. This gives us the direction and the insight we need for living life each and every day. I pray that we would heed the call to seek your face to make you the most important, the weightiest thing in our life, the number one priority in all the universe. We want for you to be glorified in all we do. Speak to us this summer through these words. 
In your name we pray. Amen.